Well, good morning again. And I don't know if you caught that little Easter egg in the JNN news coverage of the celebrating Israelite behind the bearded Nehemiah, just fist pumping in the air there. That was Nehemiah chapter 12, the celebration uh, of the, the, the great, I guess, victory of the holy city coming to pass. If there were five words that could describe the chapter from last week, uh, they would be joy, 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 and joy. That's what we talked about last week. But uh, things have changed in this chapter, Nehemiah 13. If there were perhaps some words for the mood in this chapter, I might choose words like disappointment, frustration, anger, desperation, a far cry from the, the jubilant celebration of chapter 12. I don't know if you've ever felt, I guess, the disappointment of something that you've worked on, something that you care about falling down. I can imagine um, those who've uh, put lots into the, the rebuilding efforts in Afghanistan, working at establishing uh, st structures and systems and democratic government for 20 years, just seeing that all come down really quickly would be devastating. For Nehemiah, the stakes were even higher. He's been on this restoration project of Jerusalem, the center point of the land that God gave his people, a people who were supposed to be the pattern, the first instance of a new people who lived in a good place with God himself in a holy city. And those people, that city, that was supposed to be the conduits to the world of that kind of life. This was God's restoration plan. And it looked like they'd done it, kind of. I mean, the walls were built, the people were committed to holiness. And so last week we saw that holy city celebration full of thankfulness and joy. Now, the exact timeline since the celebration of chapter 12, uh, which is difficult to piece together, but Nehemiah has been away uh, back to Babylon and he comes back to Jerusalem to find the social and spiritual fabric in tatters. He's filled with a heart drop, a stomach churning disappointment, which soon develops into a, an almost kind of manic rage. Now, as we've seen uh, uh, in Nehemiah throughout this series, uh, we've always known that this holy city uh, in Nehemiah's day, that's not the end goal. Uh, it's a signpost pointing to the ultimate holy city that Jesus has won and in which we're already citizens, but which is not fully here yet. So at various times, uh, of course, in our lives, we experience disappointment, frustration, anger, desperation. Perhaps you remember a, a real high moment in your spiritual life. Perhaps it was when you first came to believe the gospel uh, or it was a particularly transformational kind of time in your life. But now the high is over and, and reality kind of kicks in. Or perhaps it's, it's just been that you've been, I guess, jolted into reality by some uh, persistent sin that won't go away in your life or by some result of sin that, that keeps kind of being there in your face, illness, death. Or perhaps you can't even remember a particular high at all. You just sense that this, this can't be it. What do you do with that disappointment, that frustration? Even if you do trust God completely, what do you do with the mismatch between what God's promised and what is the case right now? Well, this chapter can help us. We'll look at three things today that went wrong in Jerusalem and then three ways uh, to reshape them. So three things that have gone wrong in Jerusalem. Here's the first and most obvious problem. The people celebrated being in the holy city, but then failed to live as its citizens. 
Uh, we've talked about the features of this city all the way through the series, a good place where people can be with each other and be with God. It's God's good plan for his people. It's what we're meant for. And to lose sight of that, well, it means to, to stop trusting that God actually means good for you. It's to stop trusting that he's got uh, your best in mind. Now, in this chapter, the word for evil or wicked, it's, it's used to describe what Nehemiah finds when he returns. It's used, it's used three times. Here's the first one. Uh, from verse 4, uh, we see Eliashab using his position as a priest to help Tobiah. Now, if you don't remember Tobiah, he's already been mentioned back in chapter 2 as an enemy of the restoration project. And so Eliashib, rather than help people meet with God and live with him, that was the purpose of his role as a priest. Uh, that's good for the people, good for him. Well, he uses his position and resources to garner favour with this powerful enemy. Eliashib doesn't trust that God has good for him. And so he uses his stuff to buy personal security and political influence. He's not living as a citizen of the holy city where God himself assures his security. Well, then from verse 15, we see the people in the surrounding countryside and some in Jerusalem bringing stuff in to sell in Jerusalem on the Sabbath and presumably, presumably people buying that stuff. The Sabbath, one day of rest in seven, well, it was a way of showing that all time is God's and acknowledging by your inactivity on that day that actually God provides everything anyway, whether you're working or whether you're not. A chance to rest and reflect on the fact that God is good. See, the Sabbath is a gift. But these people don't trust God. Rather than embrace knowing him more deeply, rather than growing in trust for his provision, they use that time to consume more and more, to worry more and more, to make more and more. They're not living as citizens of the holy city. And then from verse 23, uh, we see the third, I guess, evil here. We see people's deliberate decision to reshape their daily lives around, well, other gods. It's seen in their decision to intermarry freely with the surrounding nations. Now, it's not about where someone is born. Um, in the book of Ezra, which is the first half of, I guess, this story of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we have this. Uh, this is who's involved in their worship. The Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. So Israel's separation was not about where you're from per se, it's about whether you're seeking the Lord. As Nehemiah explains, the issue with this kind of intermarriage that's going on is that the people are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. See, God wants his people to live life in the good way he's designed it, balancing rest and work, not consumed by material things, growing in good relationship with each other and with him and trusting him. And yet Nehemiah finds uh, people inviting uh, those with a completely different approach to life to be key parts of their homes, being drawn into other ways of life. They've lost sight of the holy city. So it's easy for us too, perhaps, to, to lose sight, to stop living as citizens when times seem hard and disappointing. See, we too, like Elisha, misuse our resources to try and uh, buy security for ourselves. 
or like the people of Judah, misuse our time by always trying to, to jam more and more in, not stopping to rest in God. And we too get ourselves tangled in relationships for bad reasons. So God longs for people who don't know him, whoever they are, to know him and for us to be his ambassadors. But these relationships, well, they're not about that. They're relationships that drive us further and further from the good ideal that God has for us. I'm not just talking about uh, romantic relationships, although that's one category, but all kinds. Uh, friendships, business relationships, perhaps even people we listen to or read, uh, where God and his good way is far from our minds and we're associating with some other way, some other God. So there are three examples of the first and most obvious thing that's gone wrong here in Jerusalem. People have forgotten that they're citizens in the holy city. Well, here's the next thing that's gone wrong. It's Nehemiah's skin-deep solution. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed that Nehemiah is not a very happy camper in this chapter. It's not quite a Bruce Banner and the Hulk kind of scenario, but we see a side of Nehemiah here that we haven't seen before. See how he responds to each of the issues. First, he, he chucks all Tobias stuff out onto the street. Then he goes to town on the officials and asks, why is the house of God neglected? Then he calls uh, the leaders of, Jerusalem, uh, of Judah to task, telling them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? And then as if it's the final straw, when he finds out about the, the intermarriage and the kids who don't even speak the language of the land, things escalate. He calls down curses. He beats some of the men and he pulls out their hair. It's hard to know what to, to make of this, how to feel about it. I mean, it's good that the people are being held to account. Uh, he seems to almost be acting for God in that sense. But at the same time, Nehemiah's actions do seem to be a little like, vigilante in nature, full of kind of frustration and desperation. And we see then for, for each of these issues that Nehemiah institutes uh, some reform, but note what kind of reform he institutes. It's not helping the people um, confess their sins uh, and return to God, but it's, it's, it's by force. Have a look, he puts some new people in charge at the temple because he thinks he can trust them. He sets up what's essentially a Sabbath day ring of steel around the city so no one can buy or sell on that day. He just drives the grandson of the high priest who's married a foreign woman out of town. And you're left thinking, this is the last chapter of the book. We, we, I guess we don't find out in this book what happens, but Nehemiah, surely this isn't going to work. Remember what happened last time you left? All the structures you, you set up just fell down. The external structures might give a, an appearance of faithfulness, but the problem's deeper than that. It's in the heart. It's like trying to cover up a, a gaping wound with just a Band-Aid. See, their only hope is true repentance and new reliance on God's word, a new desire to live as citizens of the city. But Nehemiah doesn't bring out God's word again so the people can hear again God speaking to them and repent. That's what they need. Seems to be getting more and more hopeless, which brings us to the third thing that's gone wrong here. Despair in one man. See, the Nehemiah of chapter one, if you remember, was praying and weeping about his fellow Israelites back in Jerusalem who are in shame and disgrace. Well, in this chapter, he's had enough. He goes solo. 
It's all him taking things into his own hands. It seems that there's no one else on his side. And you might have noticed all the way through the chapter, he's, he's calling out to God in what seems like increasing desperation. He says, remember me for this, God, for what I've done in restoring the Sabbath. He says, God, remember them for what they've done. Don't bunch me in with them. And in the final verse of the whole book, he says, remember me with favor, my God. It's as if he's got to this point where he's, he's just completely given up on the people. This ship is sinking and he wants to get off it. Remember me, my God, he says. The impression we get through the whole book is that Nehemiah is a godly and faithful man. But what hope is there now at the end if it seems that the only one faithful person left has failed in what he set out to do in building this holy city? And even he is crying out to God for mercy with this kind of uncertainty. Well, those are three things that have gone wrong in Jerusalem. Clearly, if God's true to his promises, there must be more to the restoration project. So now we turn to how these three disappointments have been reshaped by the better Nehemiah, by Jesus. And we're going to take them in reverse order. So first, instead of despair in one man, in Nehemiah, we have hope in one man, in Jesus. Consider Jesus on the cross. This is what the Son of God himself asks. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he is not remembered. He's not looked on with favor in that moment. Unlike Nehemiah, who perhaps ended thinking, well, I can only save myself and the people are doomed. Well, Jesus gives himself up for the good of the people, for the good of many. As he's on the cross, he's taunted. If you really are the Christ, save yourself. Well, the reason he doesn't is he's choosing to save you and me, not himself. Save us from what? Well, we get a, a strange insight into, into judgment in this chapter. As we saw, Nehemiah applies a kind of piecemeal judgment. And it's, it's very fraught when uh, this is applied by, I guess, human beings rather than God. But being thrown out of the city like Tobiah, being chased out like the grandson, physical pain, shame. That's actually what pulling the hair out probably referred to, a, a shameful action. See, that's what it's like for you if you refuse God. If, as we all do, you use resources and time, relationships for selfish and foolish ends. If you insist on rejecting him and his good plan for you. But when Jesus came, well, he didn't come to deal out judgment. Sure, he rebuked and warned, but he never chased people away, beat people up, shamed people. No, he came to take that judgment, hanging almost naked on the cross, shameful, in great physical pain, crucified outside the city on a hill, rejected. That's the reason that if, just like Nehemiah, we pray, remember me, God, with favour, we know the prayer will be answered because the favoured one was forgotten for us. All it takes is to put genuine trust in him and his ultimate plan for the restoration of our world. So Nehemiah's prayer is ultimately a good one. It's simple, it's desperate, it's what we need. And we can pray it with more certainty than Nehemiah 
Remember me with favour, my God. Well, that's the, the first reshaping. Despair in one man moves to hope in another. The second reshaping is about, I guess, the solution to unfaithfulness. In his desperation, Nehemiah tried to ensure faithfulness by, by force. That's never been possible. God has never merely wanted rule keeping, but obedience. He wants our hearts. So becoming a Christian means being born again. It means being created anew, given a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. It means a change from the inside out. That's what trusting Jesus makes possible. It means we look forward to that happening fully and completely when Jesus returns, when we're in that final holy city. But it means growing and changing to be more like Jesus now too, more like citizens of the city. His spirit helps us as we work at it. Rules, structures perhaps can be helpful, but it's not about them. It's about our hearts. And so we come to the reshaping of the first problem we talked about, a failure to live as citizens of the city. See, we are still, of course, liable to the kind of unfaithfulness that we saw in those Israelites. But if we're in Jesus, we're already citizens of that future holy city. Not just in Jerusalem, like they were actually citizens, but the Bible calls it the New Jerusalem. And we've looked at a few times uh, what that city is like, the way it's described in the imagery of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And as we finish, I want to show you uh, three elements of it. Now, we saw how Eliashib used his resources and position at the temple to buy security, political power for himself by actually compromising the integrity of the city, by inviting that enemy in. Security, power, they're tempting things. But as citizens of that coming city, when you're yearning for security, for, for safety, and tempted to perhaps shore up your financial position or your relational standing at the expense of others, Remember that you're already a citizen of the city that is so safe. Here's what one thing it says in, in Revelation about that city. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb, that's Jesus himself, is its lamp. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Gates never locked, because there is no night. You're already looked after. That's the truth as a citizen of this city. That frees you to use your resources freely for others, for this city, living out that safety now. Well, the second one, we saw how many of those in Jerusalem ignored the Sabbath, essentially using all the time just to consume. But as a citizen of that coming city, when you're in the grip of that incessant busyness or unceasing consumption, remember what life's like there in that city. Here's another snippet from Revelation. He said to me, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Do you hear that? You'll have water of life, everything you need to live, and you'll inherit all of this as being uh, people of the land. So you have everything you need. And the main point of activity then will be to praise God, to know him 
And so that lets you see that even now, it's him who you can trust for your every need. And even now to stop and to know him more deeply, to praise him. And the final one, we saw how the people did not have their personal lives patterned uh, by God, but rather uh, allowed and invited their, I guess, ways of thinking and doing life to be shaped by those who worshipped other things. But as a citizen of that city, when you're tempted to think, well, life might be better by just fitting in with the people around or, or that over there looks more comfortable, more, more easy. Then remember that the, the centerpiece of this city is God himself and Jesus pictured as a lamb who was slain. It says in Revelation 5, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. See, this city is all about the one who is really worthy of praise, but the one who loved you so much that he died for you, showing that he undoubtedly wants good for us. He's proved that he wants good for us and that can make him only more and more worthy of our devotion, our worship. This restoration project is about restoring us to what we've been made to do and be. In Nehemiah, we see God's faithfulness to those people in that place. Against uh, all worldly odds, they build a city, they commit to holiness. But we also uh, learn much about ourselves as we're similar to those Israelites. And we can see that, well, with today's anticlimax, that that project points to a, a much bigger project of restoration. Restoration that is for our good and for God's glory through Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, as we live in a time where there are many things that can frustrate us, that can disappoint us, our Lord, we too easily lose sight of the good that you have for us, the, the holy city won by Jesus. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for your restoration project. And please help us long for it, to long for home. Amen.